1: I mentioned in the first episode in this series that the emphasis in 2 Peter is a little bit different than the emphasis in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, the apostle was trying to prepare his people for threats coming from the outside. Here in 2 Peter, the threats are coming from the inside. He is talking in this epistle about false teachers who have snuck in secretly, bringing with them destructive heresies. A destructive heresy is an idea, opinion, or teaching that is corrosive to true and saving faith. So this isn't stuff that Peter thinks people can just agree to disagree on. This is salvation-level concern. This is heaven or hell stuff. So Peter speaks frankly and firmly in this letter, and specifically in this chapter. He describes the false teachers, he prophesies their coming judgment, and he warns his people to be on guard against their influence and incursion. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Michael Green says here, there always have been, and there always will be, false teachers among the people of God, Close quote. I'm not sure how any Bible-reading Christian could deny that, and yet whenever you say that in a pulpit, or in a blog, or even in casual conversation, there will always be Christians shocked and offended by that. Some Christians have this idea that it is overly cynical, or even uncharitable, to believe that there might be someone calling themselves a Christian, having themselves a well-known Christian ministry, who is not, in fact, a Christian. And yet, warnings about that reality run thick through both the Old and New Testaments in your Bible. Peter here just accepts this as common knowledge and presents it as indisputable fact. There always have been and there always will be false teachers among the people of God until the Lord returns. So we need to prepare ourselves for life and ministry in that environment. First thing we need to do is learn to recognize these false teachers. The devil is not terribly original, so he tends to use the same techniques and he tends to send the same sort of people in every generation. In Second Peter, we're dealing with a particular type of false teacher one of the many types that recur again and again and again in the historical timeline. Thomas Schreiner says here, from the remainder of 2 Peter, it is evident that the denial of Jesus' lordship was practical in that they rejected his moral authority over their lives, close quote. So these false teachers were essentially antinomian. We've talked about that before. That's a word we use to describe people who think that if you believe in Jesus, then you're free to live however you like. The important thing is belief, not behavior. But of course, that's not really an option for true followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Believing in me without obeying me is not a thing, Jesus said. And he warned them that there would be many people on Judgment Day who would be excluded from the kingdom of God for following in the way of this pernicious error. The Greek word for lawlessness there is the word anomian. And that's, of course, the word from which we get our English word, antinomian. So the devil will always be pushing a defective version of Christianity that is all about believing in Jesus and that puts no emphasis whatsoever on behaving like Jesus. Be on guard for that, Peter says, because that's an actual heresy. These people are out there. And they're making lots of money off of silly Christians who ought to know better. They're doing immeasurable damage to the church. But rest assured, Peter says, they are heading for a terrible judgment. Verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul after their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. All right, so here Peter is saying that God knows how to punish the wicked and he knows how to preserve the righteous. And that's important because in the interim, before the final judgment, punishments and preservations will often happen simultaneously. Think of the flood. The same raindrops fell on Noah as fell on Noah's neighbors. But because Noah had an ark to enter into by the grace of God, he was preserved through that trial, whereas his unbelieving friends and neighbors were not. Or consider the story of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. The same fire and brimstone, whether that's to be understood as a volcanic eruption or some kind of meteor strike, whatever it is, it fell in a fairly broad and undiscriminating way. And if Lot and his family hadn't been ushered out of that city by an angel, then they would have been crushed and destroyed as well. But they weren't, because God knows how to punish the wicked and to preserve the righteous through these sorts of events. God knows how to sort, God knows how to save, and God knows how to punish. He even knows how to do this for angels, Peter says. He talks here about some sort of pit or chamber where the fallen angels are kept in chains waiting for the day of final judgment. So, God knows how to do this, and God is committed to doing this, particularly in the case of those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. He says that in verse 10. Now, remember, Peter has been using a couple of well-known Old Testament stories to illustrate the point that he's trying to make here. He's talked about the flood, a time when angels were crossing established boundaries and having sexual relations with human women. And he's talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, a time when men were crossing established boundaries and having sex with other men. And he says that the judgment coming on these false teachers is going to be just like that. God knows how to judge such people, Peter says, and he is committed to doing so, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. The Tyndale New Testament commentary, quoting the NIV translation of verse 10, says here, the phrase, those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature, suggests sodomy. Closed quote. Peter is saying here that false teachers undermine biblical morality. They so emphasize grace that they effectively undermine holiness. They say that because the law can't save us, which is true, then therefore the law is useless to us, which is false, but subtle enough that many people are led astray. They're led astray because the argument seems plausible, and they are led astray because secretly they want to believe that anyway. We want to believe in a version of Christianity that makes no moral and ethical demands upon us. But according to the Bible, no such version exists. These people above all people should have known that. Peter already walked them through this. In 1 Peter 1:14 to 14-15, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's pretty clear. But right alongside the truth, there will always be false teachers telling us the lies that we desperately want to hear. Verse 10 continues, saying, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of of which they're ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong." as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, their blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. So these false teachers are not impressed by anything we would traditionally think of as an established authority. Thomas Schreiner says here, these people will not submit to anyone being supremely confident of their intellectual ability, close quote. So these people trust themselves and only themselves. They are dismissive of natural law. They mock traditional piety and they argue, debate, edit, and depart from the authoritative word of God. They are in essence, the exact opposite of the faithful people described by the prophet in Isaiah 66 too. There God says, but this is the one to whom I will look to the humble and contrite in spirit who trembles at my word. So that's the saved person. That's the person that enjoys the favor and the welcome of God. But these people are theological innovators. It doesn't bother them at all that they are saying stuff that the church has never accepted as true or beautiful or good. It doesn't bother them at all that they are going against how the vast majority of Christians in the world even today are reading the Bible. Who cares? These people are intoxicated with the spirit of the age, the ethos of the culture, and the echoing certainties of their own inner monologue. Peter even says that these people are willing to blaspheme the angels. Now, we aren't 100% sure of what he means by that. As we've discovered a few times now, sometimes Peter's main point is really easy to understand, But then his illustrations, which reflect his cultural context and the default assumptions of of people living 2,000 years ago, and that would have made a great deal of sense to those folks, those illustrations are actually wildly confusing to our modern minds. What does it mean to blaspheme an angel? Our best guess would be that some of these false teachers were essentially materialists. They downplayed the spiritual realm. That wasn't a miracle, they say. That was just a coincidence. Or... There's no spiritual reality to your problem. You're just sick, or you're just experiencing a little valley in your life. They discounted out of hand every potential spiritual factor. And they did so in a wildly authoritative way, effectively blaspheming the spiritual realm. That seems to be the gist of it. Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. But was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So these people are just like Balaam in the book of Numbers, Peter says. He got into trouble because he was tempted by money. He couldn't content himself with the word of God. Balak's gold enticed him into ruin. So beware of any prophet or so-called spokesperson for God who seems to be more concerned with his financial status or his platform than what the Bible actually says. Beware of people who are attending to anything over and above, or even alongside of, in any significant way, the unchanging, inerrant, authoritative word of God. Such people are waterless springs, mists driven by a storm. That is to say, they underdeliver, deliver and they simply follow the wind and the waves of culture. They talk a big game, verse 18, and they tend to gather a substantial following from among the weakest and least biblically grounded members of the faith. They feed on those barely escaping from those who live in error. They feed on people who still have one foot left in the world. Peter David's writing in the Pillar New Testament commentary series says here, This enticement is particularly effective on newer believers, those who are just escaping from those who live in error. Closed quote. And This is why you need to be going to a church that is not living its life and conducting its ministry in some kind of perpetual merge lane. If your church isn't taking people deeper into the unchanging word of God, if it's just repeating the basics Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, then you need to find yourself a place where they bring the meat because it is only maturity and depth that will protect you from this perennial danger. Verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire, quote. So these false teachers are promising a form of Christianity liberated from the restrictions of the Bible. Just believe in Jesus and don't worry about the rest. Follow your heart and do what seems good to you. God wouldn't give you these desires if he didn't want you to give into them. So be free. Don't be so constricted. Don't be a legalist. That's what they were saying. That's the promise they were offering. That's the sweet, sickly, siren song. And if you listen to it, Peter says, it will lure you onto the rocks of addiction, corruption, and decay. And of course, that's exactly how it goes. These false teachers always promise liberty, but if you listen to them, you always end up in slavery. That's the great lie, sexual liberty, because that's what we're talking about here. Sexual liberty is, in fact, the shortest route to personal slavery. Do what you want. Do what feels right, they say. And then all of a sudden, we discover that we can't stop and we can't get out. And we aren't going where we thought we would. We aren't living the way we want to. We aren't living the way we imagined that we would. That's what Peter means when he talks about waterless springs. These people are offering something that looks like life, but it isn't. It ends up as death. This is the absolute worst version of Christianity, Peter says. The version that says, come and, and, and be forgiven and then go back and live in the mud. Who wants that? What is that? That's not freedom. That's addiction. That's hopelessness. That's the life of an animal, not the life of a man or a woman created in the image and likeness of God. You were made for more than that. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is better than that. The real gospel, the Christian gospel, the biblical gospel, saves us immediately from the penalty of sin, progressively from the power of sin, and ultimately
0: from the presence of sin Once again, that's into theword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.